Blog Talk Radio. This is Kale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's Buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Romero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon, and I am so, so thrilled to be back with you here, and back with a great one tonight. You may or may not recognize my guest's name, but if you're anything like me at all, which is to say, if you're a diehard fan of that old classic chestnut, One Life to Live, get ready to wonder how in blue hell you ever lived without his utterly terrific, towering achievement of a book for so damn long. His name is Jeff Giles. He's the editor-in-chief of the website PopDose.com, a pop culture news and entertainment net portal that you may or may not visit on a daily basis. And he's just self-published an oral history made up of a series of brand-new interviews, over 50 of them, in fact, that he himself conducted with just about everybody who was anybody connected with One Life. And when I say everybody, I kid you not. Everyone from creator Agnes Nixon and executive producers Joe Stewart, Gene Arley, Linda Gottlieb, our old pal Susie Horgan, and uh, you know so many more. And also stars like Erica Slezak, uh, let's see here, Cassie DePaiva, Bobby Woods, Hilary Smith, Ellen Holly, Judith Light, Brent Thayer. Seriously, it's easier to list the names of people Giles didn't talk to for this book than to try to enumerate all the people he did. The book in question here is called Landview in the Afternoon, and it's available in ebook and in paperback forms at Amazon.com and at BarnesandNoble.com. And I'm here to tell you people, you know, it's going to sound like I'm on the payroll by the end of this hour because I've been raving about this tome to anyone and everyone who would listen to me for weeks on end. And I assure you, I in no way benefit from the success this book will certainly attain. I am merely a fan, an undying one, of the book and of the show it so lovingly and thoroughly chronicles. But I'll tell you right now, if you were even a casual fan of One Life over the 40-plus year span of its existence, Landview in the Afternoon is going to be to you precisely what a shot of heroin is to an addict. You'll die. I'm not kidding you. You'll die to savor every last morsel of its 380 pages, and every last morsel of same will put you on a high that won't quit for days. You know, I myself was maybe 10 or 12 pages into the book before I fired off an email to Jeff and begged him to come by the buzz to explain to me step by step exactly how this brilliant idea popped into his head in the first place and how he set about the staggeringly complex journey of compiling this monumentally marvelous memoir for a fabulous television series that lived its one life with a fierce, ferocious grace. So, uh, uh, 
help me help me people here. Give me the lowdown on Jeff Giles. Who are you? Where did you come from? How did you? Uh... <laughs> well, uh, I run a pop culture magazine called Pop Dose, and I also run a parent-oriented spinoff site called Dad Mabbit. Wow. I actually don't do the day-to-day at Dad Mabbit. I lie. Okay. I, uh, I'm, <laughs> still, I'm still a publisher. There's a different editor-in-chief, so I probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> The bulk of my day is spent working for a couple of companies. One is a company called Rotten Tomatoes, and another one sure, okay, yeah. is Town uh, Square movie, Media. The movie site, the movie, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not criticism, but... Uh, We're an aggregate for reviews. So yeah, sure, yeah. They, I also work for a company called Town Square Media that owns a bunch of websites like Ultimate Classic Rock and Pop Crush and a bunch of music and, and film websites. So I'm an entertainment writer. And it editor. sounds like you're required to be a pop culture fiend. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you get paid for it to boot. And I get paid for it. It's a pretty nice. I've been very fortunate, yeah. <laughs> you know, this book, uh, Landview in the Afternoon, it's an absolute miracle. I mean, I detest the entire idea of reading books on my phone but i've just been glued to your book and it's you know it's it's so thorough and it's so i mean you know i've watched that show for 25 years and and i know that you can't compile a book like this unless you're a fan yourself so give me a sense of your experience of watching one life to live i assume you're a lifelong fan yes and no my mom was a big love in the afternoon viewer when I was a kid. So throughout the 80s, I was familiar with everything that happened on all my children, one life to live in General Hospital. (laughs) But, you know, I was born in 74, and so when General Hospital was uh, having its moment, its cultural moment, the type of stuff that was happening on that show was kind of right in the wheelhouse of a 10-year-old boy spies and and dashing adventures and things like that. And so General Hospital was kind of my focus. I wanted to be Frisco Jones. <laughs> and One Life to Live was, you know, I liked it, and I was probably always more interested in that show than all my children. But for me and, and for, I think, probably a lot of viewers, One Life to Live was the show in the middle. You know what I mean? Sure. And toward the end of the 80s, I started to get a little older, and I wasn't home in the afternoons as often, and so I kind of fell away from watching soaps. So I did an interview with the music director for One Life in 2009, and when that happened, I probably hadn't watched One Life in 20 years. Wow, okay. But I went back to it around that time because I liked Paul, and also because I kept hearing that the show was in the midst of... Uh, creative renaissance. Absolutely, absolutely. That was the, that was about the time that the uh, the Todd and Marty thing was exploding again. And yeah, and I mean, I had watched. Uh, I, I got downsized out of my last office gig in I think 2002, and I found myself home for lunch. I would turn <laughs> on the TV, and it was either you know Judge Judy or General <laughs> Hospital. And so I started watching that show again, and, and I was really disappointed. You know. The, there were still a few of the characters that I remembered, but they weren't mm-hmm. doing anything interesting or acting in ways that made any sense, given what I remembered. So I, I, I was kind of discouraged about daytime, at least at ABC. But when I turned One Life to Live back on, I it was comforting. You know, There were still a lot of faces sure. that I remembered, and, and they were on the air on a regular basis. <laughs> 
it wasn't all kids. It wasn't all mobsters. It wasn't yeah, yeah, yeah. Vicky and, 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 and Bo the show was still there, and yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the uh, <laughs> and the storylines were balanced. They incorporated a lot of characters. You know, I've always been fascinated in the medium, in the possibilities of the medium, and watching what was happening with One Life to Live at that point in time really reawakened my interest. There were things happening there that should have yeah. been promoted, and yeah. especially in the case of something like any of the musical guests that the show had, there just didn't seem to be a lot of energy sure. behind. And, you know, they, um, got, they got everybody. I mean, they got Mary J. Blige, and they got Nelly Furtado, and yeah. they got Timbaland. They got everybody through there. Yeah, and the network just didn't really seem interested. You know, in the book, I talked to Josie Emmerich, who was a, a, an executive at Daytime for quite a while, and she said that that was always the case. She said it was always the stepchild in more ways than anybody even knew. <laughs> You know, I think the prevailing wisdom was that All My Children was the crown jewel back in the heyday. Anyway, All yeah. My Children was the crown jewel. General Hospital was the moneymaker, and, you know, One Life to Live was just the bridge between them. Yeah, I never really understood why All My Children was regarded as better than One Life to Live. I don't know what that show brought that was... Uh, I mean, One Life to Live in the beginning tried at least i mean they there were things of value that were happening just kind of baked into the premise of the show in terms of sure the themes that they were trying to tackle and the different classes of families and the different ethnic yeah. backgrounds and and sure so i don't really get the love you know not to knock all my children at all but i don't know i don't understand it and that's part of what drew me into writing this book was that that show was always kind of neglected in a sense and in the show was a good yeah, I love a good underdog. And so, <laughs> you know, being that there's no way I would ever be able to do a, a book about the medium as a whole, uh, if I was going to focus on one show, I thought this was the one to hone in on. You know, it, it's so vast and sweeping. I mean, uh, it sounds like I'm talking about Gone with the Wind here, and I'm, I'm talking about you know, uh, <laughs> uh, what is, by all accounts, a silly soap opera. But, you know, to us fans, it's, more, it's much more than that. And, you know, this book just covers all of it. And, you know, I wouldn't even know where to start putting something like this together. Uh, was this an idea that had been percolating for a while, or was it something that came to you after the cancellation? I mean, what was the, where did the notion no. for memorializing this show in this way come from? It did percolate for a while. It started during my conversations with Paul. You know, the more he would tell me about different things that had happened on the set, the more I would say, somebody ought to write a book. <laughs> and And then... You know, actually, I interviewed Ron Carlovati the day before the cancellation was announced. It was, wow. It, was, it wasn't even for the book. It was just for Popdose because I thought that it would be interesting for people to get a feel for what it's like to try and write a soap. I mean, it's like anything else to do with daytime. It's such a borderline absurd undertaking that – Sure. Uh, I really thought it would be interesting, and so I set up this interview with him. We talked, and then the next day, the cancellation was announced. Wow! And uh, I saw Paul later that summer, and I just thought, you know, I, I guess if a book's going to be written, it might as well be me that writes it. Even though I kind of felt like I might be stepping on a few toes because I'm not a soap columnist, and I don't really have the bona fides to do this. You know, I haven't spent the time in the trenches that people sure. like, uh, well, I don't know, who should we name here? Michael Logan or Michael Fairman or... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mimi Torchin or, any, uh, you know, any of the... 
So who the hell am I? But, you know, I, I just thought I would give it a shot. So I drew up a wish list of people that I felt like would be a good place to start. And I, ha- I think I had about 100 people on it. And I just got started. And, and away I went. <laughs> so who was the first person you spoke with on the record? Was it Paul or was it somebody else? Actually, Paul was the last person that I talked to, partly okay. because I knew he would be easy to get on the sure, phone. Sure, sure, yeah. And partly because ABC, I quickly discovered, was not supportive of the book. And when I started, it looked like One Life was completely dead. And sure, yeah. Prospect Park wasn't even really a, uh, a concern. So I knew that ABC was not interested in supporting it or, or helping out. And Paul, by that time, had gone on to work at General Hospital, and so I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to cause any conflict. But yeah, sure. the first person that I spoke with was Tony Call, who played Herb Callison. And it was so great to, to hear from him. You know, uh, they did him so badly at the end of his run on One Life <laughs> to Live, and it was so great to hear from him again and hear some of those old stories about you know, working with Strasser and, and, you know, about the way he was dismissed from the show, uh, with, uh, stories we hadn't heard before. He is a good example of, I think, kind of a prototypical soap actor in that these people are really pretty approachable. I mean, they, I think it's easy to assume that they lead glamorous lives. Uh, <laughs> but being a soap actor is really... I mean, I haven't done it, but based on the stuff that I've heard from all the actors that I spoke with, sure, it's kind of a blue-collar gig. And, you know, I've found that to be the case doing this job right here. I've spoken to a great, a great number of soap actors, and, and you know, they're, they're among my favorite people to talk to because they're just so they're, – they're, it's almost like talking to my next-door neighbor in a funny kind of way. Yeah, yeah they're very down-to-earth. They're very approachable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even people who – you might not expect, like Erica Slazak or Judith Light. You know, they're sure very, very approachable people. With the exception of the people who would not speak to me, I can't vouch for those guys. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> All right. You, you know, uh, uh, clearly this was a labor of love for you, and I'm sure that there were many moments when you thought, "Holy God, this is too big a project to even think about trying to conquer." Uh, was there a moment, or was there an interview, or? Uh, you know, something where where you thought to yourself, okay, this really is going to work. This really is going to be a viable project. You know, I knew that if I couldn't get Erica Slezak, then it was all going to – like, she was the only one. There were plenty of people that I really, really wanted to talk to, and there are people who don't appear in the book that I feel like it's damaging to the story of the show that they're not in there. But I knew that if I couldn't get Erica Slezak, that – you know, there wasn't a viable project, but I waited. It was either last summer or last fall. I waited until I was pretty far along because I wanted to tell her, you know, I've spoken with this many people. That I sure. wanted her to know that I wasn't just some fly by night chain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And also, she was really hard to get a hold of. Her manager is not the speediest fellow. And so I actually. <laughs> I did an end around and I tracked her down through other means. But once I did, she was very, very approachable. And in fact, she invited me out to her house and she baked me quiche. Oh my goodness. Wow. I know. <laughs> that was surreal. <laughs> Bar none, the most surreal experience I had. There were plenty of times where I would see like Bob Woods' name on my caller ID and I would kind of pinch <laughs> myself. But having quiche with Erica Slade <laughs> was... That she made for you. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> 
you uh, you mentioned people who aren't in the book, and and you know I'll tell you as much as I love the book, and believe me I do from stem to stern, I couldn't help but be disappointed by what isn't in it, and. You know, again, I haven't made it all the way through yet, but I haven't seen any quotes from many of the big 80s stars like Andrew Evans or John Loprino or, uh, you know, Jim DePaiva, Jensen Buchanan. And, of course, you know, Paul Roush passed away last year, and his primary headliner, Michael Snessel, passed away many years ago. And, you know, I bet a million stories died right along with him, sadly. Uh, Did you have people refuse to talk to you, or were there people that you couldn't track down? I mean, talk to me about what didn't make the cut in this book and why. Leprino was just kind of squirrely. I mean, I sent him probably 10 emails that he didn't respond to. And okay. he's an instructor at a college, and so I found his office number, or what I thought was his office number, but it was actually his cell phone number. And I called him, and I got him in the middle of rehearsal, and he sounded a little surly and gave me his office hours. I, I told him, He told me to call him that. And I did, and we didn't connect. And then... When I spoke with Brenda Brock, she mentioned really wanting to get back in touch with him. And so I called him again to tell him that she wanted his email address. And when I mentioned her name, he kind of perked up. Okay, wow. And we talked for five or ten minutes. But I just don't think he was all that interested. We never connected. Andrea Evans flat out refused. Her representative said that she would possibly be writing her own memoir. Okay. Jensen Buchanan never responded. Yeah, you know, I've tried to, I've I've tracked her down myself and she hasn't responded to any of my queries either. I've I've tried many times over the years because I was a big fan of not only her work on One Life but her work on Another World subsequently and and I would I, you know, I'm sure she has a million stories about working with Paul Rauch and you know some of the some of the people. Yeah. And, and I did speak with Paul Rauch for a minute and he was also kind of vague and noncommittal and now I realize why. You know, he was sick. He seemed open to doing it, but he just, I never could pin him down. And, you know, based on all the stories that I had heard about him, I wasn't in any rush to get him on the phone because <laughs> I, I didn't know how friendly the conversation was going to be. And sure. So I was kind of, I was a little nervous about doing it. I do feel like there were enough stories about him that there's kind of a balanced overall picture of. Sure. He's, he's, a, presence in, he's a presence in the book, even though he's not an active participant. Yeah, and people weren't shy about their experiences with him either. <laughs> <laughs> and how about Jim uh, and I did. I, I, you talked to Kathy, so I assume that you had access to him. I did speak with Jim DePaiva, and much to my agony, the audio was lost, and I didn't have oh. the heart to track him. I didn't oh. have the heart to ask him for another interview. I was oh going to do it God. at the very end, but I, <laughs> I just couldn't do it. It, it, oh, was, uh, no. it was a... Terrible experience. I went to play back the audio to uh, transcribe it, and it just wasn't there. That was the only <laughs> interview where that happened. It's all my fault. Jim DePaiva was very open, very candid, very generous with his time. And, As he always uh, was. I mean, I loved, uh, you know, in the mid-'90s, he would give interviews about, you know, his hatred of Linda Gottlieb and, and uh, <laughs> you know, working with Paul Roush and working with Andrea Evans, and he would just let it fly. I mean, he's one of those guys who just tells it straight like it is. Yeah, he was very – he defended Paul Roush. In fact, I think he had just had dinner with him when I spoke with him. And he wow. was very open about his own culpability in his demise <laughs> at One Life, you know, his problems, I guess. He actually told a really interesting uh, – he had an interesting perspective. This is one of the reasons why I wish I could have spoken with Leprino is that DePaiva said that particularly for the men, for the young men in the 80s, there was a time – three to six months into their tenure, if they achieved any kind of popularity, 
where they would kind of have a breakdown because <laughs> the job was so all-consuming and the terror that people like Joe Lando describe in the book where you're just kind of thrown to the fire. I mean, you you get the gig and two days later you're on the set and you have got to memorize reams and reams of dialogue. And he told a story about walking into the makeup room and kind of bopping in and saying hi to Leprino and asking if he wanted to go someplace. I can't remember, but he said Leprino whirled around on him with this <laughs> grimace on his face, you know, ready to bite his head off. And he said Leprino's not like that at all. He's a very sweet guy, but it, it, you just reach a point where you're in the middle of all this weird energy, and it's a crazy gig, and something's bound to snap. Plus, back in those days when they weren't on set acting, they they were doing mall appearances and they were going on yeah. all the talk shows. I mean, you know, for a time, those guys were the most famous people on television. Just just by dint of you know being being on TV five days a week, and you know, all, just by dint of the exposure. In the book, Bob Woods describes going to an appearance with, I think it was Colleen Zink, and walking in and seeing all the people and asking the event coordinator, whoever was there, who else was going to be making an appearance at the mall that day because it didn't occur to him that all those people were there. Yeah, were there him. for him. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I'm sure you had a list of things you were curious about when you started this. Um, was there one thing or, uh, you know, a couple of things, a storyline or a producer or a coupling or whatever that you really wanted to know more about when you set out on this path? I consciously avoided storylines and couples. I felt like, and I probably shouldn't say this because I'm going to depend on these people for exposure, but I felt like soap press tends to focus on things like characters and storylines. And I don't think that's the most interesting part of the story. I think that's the most transitory part of what makes soaps worthwhile. In the beginning, what I wanted to do was try and paint a picture of soaps as a bellwether, a canary in the coal mine for scripted entertainment, because I think they've been at the vanguard in a lot of ways that they don't get credit for. And I'm af- I was afraid in the beginning that you know the fact that they, were, they seemed to be dwindling was an indication that the network's commitment to supporting narrative entertainment was going away. But the more I talked to people, the more I realized that that wasn't really the story. The story was that it's a miracle that these shows existed at all. I mean, just the odds were always against them in every conceivable way. There's a quote in the book from Joe Stewart where he says, if you had said to somebody, make an hour of television every day <laughs> and do it indefinitely, you know, <laughs> nobody ever would have done it. It was yeah. just a, like, all the stuff that people make fun of the soaps for is real. There is bad lighting. There is sure. big hair. There is melodramatic acting. There are silly storylines, but... There's and also the tag really at the end of each scene and, you know, the, 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 yes. the look held about five <laughs> seconds too long. Yeah, sure. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but there's also really profoundly affecting drama, and there's stuff that really speaks to the human condition. And the fact that that is in there, it's a miracle. And so that is kind of what I tried to capture as I spoke with these people is the way that they worked against the constraints of the medium – even when they had the budget, the constraints of the medium were pretty profound. And then toward the end, when they had no network resources and they were filming things 30 episodes out of sequence, <laughs> they had to get together in the dressing room and figure out what was happening in any given scene. 
and yet they still managed to turn in work that was, in a lot of cases, well worth watching. Absolutely. You know, it's it's so funny. I was uh, you had a great quote. I think it was Michael Malone in the book. I think he said something to the effect of, "It was daytime that taught primetime television how to tell yeah. serialized stories and how to do what they do so brilliantly now." I mean, you you think about you think about things like uh, you know everybody's talking about Breaking Bad last night and everybody's talking about you know Grey's Anatomy and The Good Wife and you know all these things would not exist without the template of the daytime model. And it's so funny. I was talking to. I think I was talking to Cale Brown many, many years ago. He was an actor on One Life for a while, and, and he was on Another World and other shows. And, and uh, you know, we were talking about basically people – I think one of the big reasons why the audience has fallen away from daytime soap is because people are getting their soap fix in all the other genres of television now. I think that's part but of it. they don't necessarily have to be chained to their TV at 2 o'clock in the afternoon to watch a soap. They can get their soap fix at, you know – uh, 10 o'clock at night, watching Grey's Anatomy, watching NYPD Blue, sure. watching Breaking Bad, watching The Sopranos, watching whatever. I think part of it is also the ratings metrics are broken. I mean, I've always thought that soaps, you know, if you own a soap, that's kind of like a license to print money because people love a good cliffhanger, and this is a medium that gives you five of them every week. <laughs> and if you do it right, you know, give yourself a little canvas, and you drop the characters down on it, and if... If you're doing it right, you just kind of wind them up and let them go, and they, and they tell their own story almost. I do think that part of the demise is that people don't have you know, five hours to devote to one show anymore. But the other side of that coin is that I'm not sure they ever did. All the research always indicated that people only watch two and a half episodes, and that's why the dialogue is so terrible, because everybody has to repeat stuff. <laughs> so that everybody can get caught up, sure. Yeah. Although now you get flashbacks to stuff that happened the, like the previous episode or even <laughs> earlier in that yeah. show, which is yeah. horrible. But, you know, it's so funny to me. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of Inside Edition. I know I shouldn't say that on, on uh, public radio here, but, <laughs> but you know, if you, even if you watch that show, they package that show in little two-minute, three-minute uh, right. clips. And, you know, at the end of that clip, they'll, they'll tell you, tune in tomorrow for the next little bit of the story. So it's, you right. know, it's packaged in its own way like a little soap opera, except the characters are, you know, Brad and Angelina and Jennifer Aniston and, you know, all the, yes. all the pop culture people of the moment. Those, those, are the, those are the new soap characters in a, in a funny kind of way. Those are the new Luke and Laura's. I think the bulk of the people who actually understand the work really respect it. I actually, you mentioned Breaking Bad, and I came close to speaking with Brian Cranston, who was on One Life for a little bit in the 80s. He was very willing to do it. It was just a, a matter of scheduling because he's, wow. he's Brian Cranston and sure. he's everywhere right now. But <laughs> but he would have done it. Wallace Shawn was willing to do it, scheduling permitting, and it just didn't work out. But, you know, it's great you know, that you there got were people folks, like Nathan Fillion and Judith Light. And those are two of the most passionate, eloquent defenders of daytime, of not only what it did for them, but just the kind of inherent capabilities of the medium. Nathan Fillion came right out and he said, Whenever he hears people denigrate daytime, it really makes him angry. Judith Light said some really almost kind of poetic stuff that I tucked into the end of the book. It always breaks my heart when I see people like Ryan Phillippe just cringe whenever anyone mentions his so fast because <laughs> you know that you know that storyline, that 1992 storyline. I don't know if you've, it's it's the the uh, homophobia, the AIDS quilt storyline on One Life, right. and you know some of that work was just absolutely riveting. 
and you know, it, it just breaks my heart when he cringes whenever anyone brings it up because there's no telling how many lives that storyline saves or affected. Yeah, it is. It's it's a shame, and a lot of what I talk about in the book is the stigma. I mean, that's I think the first thing I talked to all the actors about was the stigma and how. You know, to what extent it played a role in their decision to accept a part on a show. If they were worried about being typecast, if they were worried about not being taken seriously, if they developed a foxhole mentality because they knew they were doing this really hard work and yet people were laughing at them for it. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine doing that. I can't imagine working 12 hours a day to try and memorize however many pages of dialogue. And, 100, and, 125, and, 150, yeah, sure. Right, and then to see Chelsea Handler making fun of you, <laughs> you know, or the soup, it, it's gotta, <laughs> it's gotta burn a little bit. <laughs> so a couple of them, like Bob Woods and Steve Fletcher, who played Brad Vernon in the 70s and 80s, they talked about going out on auditions and hearing some of that negative, stereotypical feedback from casting directors and. Again, I can't imagine what it's like to have your life's work made fun of like that. Sure. Was there anything that surprised you during the course of any of the interviews you did? I mean, was there something that somebody said that just flabbergasted you? I'm, I mean, I'm sure it happened a hundred times, but is there something that, that pops in your mind that, that thinks, wow, I didn't know that or I didn't realize that or I wasn't expecting you to say that or you know, something along those lines? <laughs> there were a few. I talked to... Margot Hughes and Call, who was a post-production supervisor, she married Tony Call, sure, yeah. um, and she was there for decades. She was the default the show historian. Yeah, she was the show historian. She was the Bible. <laughs> when Linda Gottlieb came in in the early '90s, they turned to her to actually write down all the <laughs> that information. You know, that, that's actually usually on paper for a show. <laughs> but in the beginning, she said that. Everything was kind of uh, put together on the fly. Like if they needed medical advice, she would call her gynecologist. <laughs> uh, if they needed something for uh, a legal storyline, you know, her father was a lawyer, so she'd call her her dad to get that kind of information. How uh, great! <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff happened all the time. And then uh, in terms of actors, Eileen Kristen is she's full of a thousand stories. I mean, she no question about it. At the end of our conversation, I was begging her to let me write her a memoir because she just knows that. I mean, she was talking about hanging out with Bruce Willis when he was a bartender. She, anybody who ever bumps into her and has an opportunity to listen, I've had her. I had her on this show uh, uh, a couple of times, and she is a firecracker. I mean, she is so much fun. Yeah, she was great. She was great. You know, there are certain areas in the show's history that you don't spend a lot of time covering. For instance, the Claire Levine right. era in the late 90s, which was a hotly debated period amongst diehard fans of the show. I mean, I know Claire herself pretty much refuses to speak at any great length about her time writing that show. And, you know, I've seen several yep. interviews with her where she just basically, you know, shuts it down whenever one life comes up in the conversation. Uh, was that a conscious choice on your part to avoid that time in the show's run, or, or could you just not get anybody to talk on the record about it? Definitely the latter. I reached out to a few different people, and they're either I either couldn't find contact information or they just didn't respond. And there were actors from that era too. You know, uh, I I did just I couldn't get them to talk to me, or I couldn't get them to respond to me, or what have you. I mean, I I know that the book it spends a lot of time on the early years. It spends a lot of time on the quote unquote golden years, and then there's a fair amount of time on the Gottlieb years, and then of course the end of the show, but there is a period there where it kind of glosses over and that was not by design at all. It's just that 
just happened that way. It just happened that way, yeah. I tried to touch on it a bit, you know, just the fact that that was a period when a show that to that point had been sort of a model of consistency, at least in the context of daytime, behind the scenes. There really hadn't been a ton of turnover at One Life until Linda Gottlieb left, and then it was just kind of a free-for-all where people were coming and going Absolutely. all the time. And, you know, yeah. you, you do cover that pretty well in your, in your interstitial prose pieces, but, you know, in, in terms of the people talking, I, I was dying to hear more stories about that particular era because it was such a divisive era for the fans and I'm sure for the actors involved as well. It would have been nice to talk to Gary Tomlin. It would have been nice to talk to Dina Higley <laughs> to get her point of view. About you know, I reached out to her. She, she wrote a novel or something a couple years ago, and I reached out to her and got no response whatsoever. Yeah, I was. You know, there were people I was surprised wouldn't talk. One of the first people I tried to get to talk to me was Ken Meeker, and he wouldn't do it. Wow. And that actually, him turning me down was a little bit of a turning point because at that point I was still reaching out to people by hunting them down through Google. And Ken Meeker was <laughs> a really hard one to track down. <laughs> it took days. And when he said no, I knew that I needed to change my approach. Um, oh, man. But wow. There were a handful of people like that where they just. Um, you know, I, I can't really fault anybody for it. If you read Steve Fletcher's story and if you read Michael Storm's story, you know that sure. daytime can be kind of mean and that for a lot of these people, there really wasn't closure. They didn't get to leave on their terms when they wanted to, and there are still lingering feelings of bitterness and resentment and sadness. And, you know, there are people like Nathan Perdue who toiled on that show for years and years and then were just unceremoniously, you know, just dumped one day. He's one of the folks that responded to me with a one-line email. Yeah, he <laughs> is not interested in revisiting that part of his life. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get people like Ken Stickney who are also, you know, shown the door, and, and uh, yeah. they're very eloquent about, you know, the good and the bad about their experiences on the show. Talking to Tim Stickney was a real pleasure. I actually got to talk to him when he was backstage at a, a play that he was doing. Oh, that I think guy, was that guy seems like a trip. He was a lot of fun to talk to, and he was completely candid. And that was a tremendous asset to the book because a lot of what we talked about was another one of the through lines that I tried to put in the narrative, which is that One Life started with a commitment to discussing Diversity. issues of race. Yeah, and, sure. Yeah, and, 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 and it lost that to quite a great extent relatively early in its run. You know, every few years, a few token minority characters would bubble up and then they would disappear. So Stickney was one that I wanted to talk to about that, and he was very open. And so was Sean Ringgold. You know, another great person you talked to was Tanya Walker. There was a quotable moment in every in every uh, Tanya Walker bit in the book. I think she was fabulous. She was pretty fabulous. I loved the. Uh, there's a little give and take between her and Linda Gottlieb. Where, yeah, where she where she says uh, that it was horseshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Linda Gottlieb really believes that a lot of the actors really believe that they are their character, and and she uses Tanya Walker as an example of this. Oh, that is fantastic. <laughs> and tells a story of telling Tanya that Alex, her character, is, is going to be killed off. And, and uh, <laughs> she says that Tanya just lost her mind and started sobbing and, and begging for Alex's life. And that to get Tanya to listen to her and to hear her clearly, she had to address her as Alex and tell her that she was going to go to prison and she was going to make some new friends there. And, <laughs> and, and according to Linda, that's what kind of solved the meeting. That's what sent Tanya away happy, and that's what Tanya refers to as horseshit. Yeah, she, oh, that is 
<laughs> that is and there are some good stories about her and Tom Christopher when they were uh, filming some love scenes on the set. Yeah, doing their they F&M were... thing, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. They were both a lot of fun to talk to. <laughs> you know, you also don't pay much mind to the Jill Farron Phelps era of One Life, which was another, you know, very controversial, very divisive era. Did you even try to get in contact with her? You know, I think part of what makes the book work is that I started by talking with people who hadn't been on the show for a long time and really didn't have any interest in preserving their own modesty or anybody else's. And the show seemed to be dead when I started. And so when I talked to people like Bob Woods, he, at the, at when we first spoke, regarded himself as completely retired. And he just didn't, I mean, he wasn't mean, but he didn't hold anything back. And that was the sure. case with pretty much everybody. They were 100% honest. And I knew that Phelps, you know, she's still in daytime. She's still of course, in it, yeah. and yeah, she yeah. has her own little fiefdom over there now. And I, I, uh, I admit, I didn't even reach out to her because I didn't have any confidence that she would want to talk. Or if she did decide to, that that you would get anything substantive, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's why I didn't reach out to like Kristen Alderson um, because I've interviewed her before, and I know that she is the type of interviewee who. It tends to tell you that everything is great. <laughs> and it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's wonderful. I'm glad for her, but it's not the most interesting of conversations. I did try and to if, get Roger Howard and Michael. Yeah, I was, about talk, to, I was about to mention his name because he is, he is notoriously press shy. Yeah, he, both of the Todds turned me down. One a little more politely than the other. <laughs> and Easton was very cordial. And, and it was, you know, I reached out to him in the middle of all that crazy brouhaha between Prospect Park and ABC when Easton was off the air at General Hospital and nobody knew what was going to happen with his character and he just kind of thought that it would be better if he didn't say anything. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the Todd thing was uh, a disappointment. It would have been nice to speak with both of them because in the book we talk about that weird daytime thing where the redemption of the rapist is a popular storyline, which is so puzzling to me in a female-driven medium that rapists are so often turned into romantic leading men. And I really tried hard, speaking of Todd and Marty, I really tried hard to speak to Susan Askell, but um, it just didn't work out. She, Her reps made it seem like she was interested, but I could never get a date. And wow. so that's why she is not in the book. There were some hard feelings the last time she left the show, and I can only imagine that's probably why she's not in any big rush to <laughs> to talk about that part of her life. Yeah, you know, they they completely destroyed the Marty character, and, you know, it made for some great storytelling, but it was sad that, you know, she won two Emmys on that show, and and it was sad to see that character just kind of be demolished the way it was. It's sacrificed, yeah, exactly. I I mean, you know, it it kind of made sense within the context of the story they were telling, because, you know, her son had gone to prison, and she had been, you know, kidnapped by Todd, essentially, and, you know, there was a a number of things over the years that kind of chipped away at her mental state, so it kind of made sense in the storytelling. Sense, but you know, it but was, it was such kid. a shame to to lose somebody of, of her caliber. I mean, that this is a fantastic actress. Yeah, and I know that her last day on the set, she gathered everybody around and delivered a big speech about how she had never been treated so poorly in her life. And wow, I had hoped to ask her about that, but <laughs> it was not to be. I didn't hear that story. Wow. Maybe for the expanded edition. <laughs> Maybe I'll get her to talk to me then. So have you been watching the reboot? Do you have any thoughts on... Yeah, I did watch it, and uh, it's kind of weird, isn't it? They had a month exactly. to come up that's, with stories. That's the thing. I mean, 
they started this. I mean, they, those guys were hired in mid-January, and yeah. I think they were going into production in mid-February. And so it's it's one of those things. I mean, it, you know, the fact that they got anything off the ground at all is is uh, miraculous. Yep. Miraculous. When I did my follow-up with Erica, I asked her if this incarnation harkened back to the early days of One Life when it was made up of, of Broadway vets and. It was just kind of like, a, hey, let's put on a show. You know, it was a repertory company, basically, <laughs> with TV money. And and she said, yeah, it was. It was some of that vibe did come back because they were really sort of flying by the seat of their pants. And also, she told me that the it's in the book, but she told me that the way Prospect Park designed the set was completely ass backwards. They didn't consult anybody who had ever designed a set before, and so the building is one long corridor. And the cameras have to go from one end to the next. And so sure. if you have a scene in, I think the Lord Library is the first set. And then I think the coffee shop maybe is at the other end. And so if you have a scene in the Lord Library and you also have a scene in the coffee shop, <laughs> then you do, <laughs> you do your first scene and then you cool your heels until the cameras end up at the other end of the building. And it wasn't totally like that in the early days, but it was in the sense that the actors were around each other all day and they were all watching each other's work and sure. she was appreciative of that you know she didn't mind being there and hanging out with Robin Strasser and <coughs> Hillary and Cassie sure. and, and having lunch like that yeah I thought Landview seemed smaller somehow in the reboot and I thought that the writing was a tad disjointed but I'm still hopeful that they'll manage to get their act together. I don't know what the odds are, but I'm still hopeful. I think it would be awfully poetic if a soap, <laughs> or two soaps, I guess I should say, end up proving that you can monetize online content that airs on a regular basis. You know, it's it, it, the actors that they found, uh, by and large, were fantastic. I mean, the recast yeah. actors that they, that they brought in. And it's just a shame that... But like I said, they had a month. I mean, they had a month to get something off the ground, and it's just a shame that that the the stories were a little flat. They were, and, and yeah, you're right. A lot of the new cast was great. Some of them uh, a little wooden, <laughs> and I thought that some of the moments that should have been really big were not, like the revelation that Victor was alive. Sure. And that whole murder mystery thing with that girl who OD'd, and that weird sugar daddy guy, that was all a little <laughs> disjointed. But, you know, not enough for me to stop watching. I still watched every episode. Absolutely. Oh, I, you know, it, except for the uh, the Friday ones. I didn't watch those. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was it was a little sad to me that they basically stuck Natalie with Cutter because Cutter was the only guy in her age range. Yeah. I, mean, that, that was, I found that very disappointing. I mean, they could have You could see a little casting geometry going on there. <laughs> exactly. There's really but, you nowhere know, else uh, for her to go. But you know the the kid that they brought in to replace Eddie Alderson was was a rare. I thought this he was, this kid Rob Gorey he very was fantastic. Good. Yeah, he seems to still be kind of flying the banner on Twitter for the show too, which is nice. <laughs> the one I think that was maybe the nicest surprise, and I'm not saying he is he deserves an Emmy or anything, but Andrew Trichetta. You know, watching him on the ABC version of the show was like watching a baby bird try to peck out of his shell. It was, just, it was adorable watching him try to act, but he, you know, he, he's come a long way. He's, he's doing it. He's, he's not bad. 
Well, you know, you, you can't hang around uh, Florencia and Cassie DePaiva and Roger Howarth on a yeah. daily basis and not not pick up a, a few things, even just by osmosis. Right, exactly. <laughs> I just, Florencia was another one that I tried to – I reached out to her a bunch of times, too. I would have loved to have spoken with her because she's great. So uh, tell me how the process of, of uh, you know, compiling this book altered your opinion <laughs> or your perception of the show. I mean, did you come away from this book – with an altered view of one life, positive or negative, in a way that you might not otherwise have had you not spoken with and formed relationships with the people who were responsible for, you know, getting that work on the air? I guess I always just assumed that it was a much smoother ship than it really was. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was ABC. It's a major network show, right? Everything has got to be buttoned yeah. down and in its right place before you roll camera. But that's not the case. I mean, it really was... Like the writers were trying to keep up, and the producers. There's a great story in there about Paul Rauch when the way he hired Brenda Brock. He signed her to a contract role. She was originally there just for a brief storyline, and there was a writer's strike, and they were they must have been panicking. And and uh, Rauch called Brenda into his office and told her that he wanted her to stick around and she said great what is my character's name and he said uh brenda <laughs> and she said oh uh, okay what does she do and and rouch knew that she had gone to nursing school and he said uh she's a nurse and <laughs> she said that at the time she didn't realize what was happening but looking back she understands that because of the fact that there was a writer strike they had to really scramble uh and, and there was a bunch of stories like that and so i didn't understand just how fast these folks all had to keep dancing to put out this product. And a lot of them did it, particularly in the case of the reboot, a lot of them did it because they knew that the fans were watching. And I also didn't know about the taping out of sequence, which just got completely out of hand toward the end. I understand why they did it. Frank Valentini was trying to save a lot of money, and he did, sure. and he's a genius for doing it. But for, as an actor, I just cannot <laughs> fathom. I just kept paying. Everybody would tell me stories about they'd get together in a gang in the dressing room and like do straw diagrams to figure out what was happening. Um, <laughs> Brian Kerwin, who played, oh, I'm drawing a blank, oh, Charlie. Charlie, Charlie Banks. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was nominated for an Emmy. An Emmy. Yeah, great actor, Broadway actor, talented, talented guy. And he tells a story in the book about showing up one day to film a funeral and not having any idea whose funeral. He's, he's on the set. He's wearing his suit and he's looking sad because he's supposed to. And it dawns on him as he's on the set filming his scenes that he has no idea whose funeral he's, he's at. He says to this day he doesn't know what funeral that was for. <laughs> You know, it's so funny so, you mentioned his name. He, he, he has a great story in the book about kind of waffling about doing daytime. Should I do it? Should yeah. I not do it? And then he picks up Larry Brigman's name and realizes that, you know, Larry Brigman was on As Well Turns for uh, three decades and, you know, has this huge theater career. And that was what sealed it for him, that he could do this and still be okay professionally. And Kerwin, in that way, was a throwback because in the early days of One Life to Live, when it was still a half-hour show, they encouraged Act. I mean, it was a Broadway was a feeder system for that show. They had all these really talented, really poor actors that they could draw in like a magnet, and these people, their lifestyles were subsidized by the show, and then they still got to go and do their plays. That went away after the show expanded to an hour, and then when the schedules got really hairy in the 90s and beyond, it kind of went away. But Kerwin 
still made a point of staying on stage. And so he was a throwback in that way. And, and the last thing he says in the book is that if they hadn't let him go, he would have kept coming back forever. You know, he got to walk to work. He got to do whatever plays he wanted to do. It was a perfect gig for him. You know, talking about filming things out of sequence, and, you know, we're hearing stories about Days of Our Lives filming six months in advance and, and uh, you know, all these all these crazy yeah. things. It's it's amazing how, you know, these people are, as you say, dancing as fast as they can, just trying to keep, you know, an hour of content on the air every day. It never occurred to me just how high the odds were stacked against <laughs> managing to create anything of quality that was the big lesson that i took away from it and i tried to put it together in such a way that even if you hadn't ever seen the show it would still be an interesting read and it would still kind of convey that again everything that people say about soaps is true but they still (laughs) i i don't think they get the respect that they deserve not only for the level of product that they managed to put out but for the trends that they've set, for the, the you know, they proved that people would tune in to watch an hour of television. They proved that people would follow a serialized story every day. They, 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 they did all kinds of stuff. And their tropes have been absorbed by other shows that get a lot more credit and don't have to exert as much effort to stay on the screen. You bet. Just because it's, say, 13 or 22 hours a year as opposed to yeah. 250 a year. What season of of Lost was it that everybody hated? Was it the third season, the fourth season? I forget. But you know, that's those guys were responsible for twenty twenty two hours <laughs> in a year, and they messed it up. They couldn't do it. They fumbled the ball. You know, look at the average of a soap. I mean, there might be twenty bad episodes in a year. There might be more than that. But you're going to get a lot of good stuff in there too. And, sure. and uh, you're talking about more than two hundred hours of story. I hope they stick around because I, th- I think there's really, you know, long form serialized narrative. There's a power and a weight that those stories accrue over time that you can't get when you're talking about a show that's only on for five seasons. There's just something unique and special about generational story like that. You know, it's so funny that you mentioned Lost. I was just listening to an interview with David Lindelof whom I'm, I'm yeah. a huge fan of. And, he, you know, he was talking about show running. The first season of Lost, he had never been a showrunner before. He had always <laughs> just been a staff writer somewhere. And, you know, he was talking about how how he was just, you know, absolutely losing his mind. He couldn't handle it after about, you know, seven or eight episodes. And, and you know, he, he, he's talking about the work these people do. I don't think that Damon could handle one day of, of walking in somebody like Frank Valentini's shoes or, uh, you know, even Jill Phelps's shoes, Gary Tomlin's shoes. I mean, he just collapse i think linda gottlieb was very forthright about the reason she left was that after two or three years she just couldn't do it anymore she was burned out there's a great story about phil carey that has probably been told before on your show about his first day on the set he walked in and got his script and said how many of these pages do i need to know and they said all of them and he got on the phone with his wife and he said don't unpack You've already kind of answered this, but just to kind of put a nice little button on this conversation, for future generations who will only read about this show without ever, you know, having had the experience of watching it day to day, what is the lasting legacy of One Likes to Live? I mean, you know, as a fan of that show, what set it apart? Jeez, that's a good question, and that's one that I have thought about since some of the characters were absorbed into General Hospital. I might be an atypical viewer because I don't really care about couples and I don't really care about individual characters 
And that last point was really driven home. When those three actors went over to General Hospital, you know, I was happy to see them and I was happy to have the experience of those characters on the screen, but it just wasn't the same. I mean, it wasn't one life to live. I mean, the, the, the experience, what made the show pleasurable for me was the sum total of those characters in that environment. There was something unique about the way that town was portrayed when it was being done right. And, you know, for all the flaws of the later years on the main, those guys did a really good job of staying true to the spirit of the show while still making room for young women in their underwear and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and explosions and things like that. The lasting legacy. I mean, I don't know. There was always just something unique about that show. And, and I'd, it might take another book to get at the heart of what that was because the show, the structure and the gist of the show changed many, many times over the course of its run. I mean, it went from being about a poor Polish doctor who was supposed to be in love with a wealthy heiress to oil barons and uh, <laughs> underground cities. You bet. Time travel, the afterlife, and all this stuff. But... When I came back to it, there was just something so comforting. It was like, oh, yeah, I know. This is Landview. I, this feels right. This is the same town that I remember from when I was a kid. And it wasn't like that with General Hospital. It wasn't – and I can't say anything about all my children because I, I haven't watched that show in decades. But, you know, clearly General Hospital has changed substantially and irrevocably. It just is not what it was. The atmosphere on that show changed and it's a totally different beast now, even with Frank and Ron over there, guys who clearly understand and respect the history of the show. But there was, there was just something that was like a there was just something unique that stayed about one life to live. I guess if you wanted to get serious about it, you could say that the legacy was some of the important storylines they did early in their run, like with Ellen Holly, who we didn't even talk about her storyline about the lift of imitation of life, where her character was. Sure. A black woman passing as a white woman. Sure. Huge deal at that time. Or, or the storyline where uh, a character went to uh, a halfway house. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And did those improvised scenes with non-actors who were recovering drug addict. There were some daring moments in that show. I guess the AIDS quilt should probably be Absolutely. folded into no that. question about it. So uh, those are all part of that legacy. And, and I guess... Its uh, stepchild status at ABC <laughs> means that it had to work a little harder than some of the other shows to make all that magic happen and, and, <laughs> and just to stay on the air as long as it did. And I really don't know what the odds are that we'll see another season of One Life to Live, but I do have my fingers crossed. I would really <laughs> like to... Fingers and toes and legs and the whole... Yeah, all that stuff. I mean, I know it doesn't look good, and I know that this company is, I mean, it seems to be run by a bunch of yahoos. I don't really, they don't really seem to know what they're doing over there, at least in terms of how to deal with their actors. I mean, good Lord. That's shelving, that the news came out before they even bothered to talk to the actors is, is just asinine. And that the news came out in the ninth paragraph of a ten-paragraph story, you know, kind of buried yeah. in, at the bottom of the hand. I mean, just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, I spoke with Michael Fairman for a couple minutes last week, and, and he said that he 
is not sure that that was supposed to be in the article because yeah like you say it is not really an announcement it's just kind of in there as an oh by the way and I spoke no, with it, Marilyn it, Chris last week, and she said that this is why whenever actors get a little bit of power, they turn into pricks, because <laughs> they're treated like children. You know, it, it kind of makes you wonder if the writer of the story didn't realize that what the real story was there, or if yeah. the Prospect Park people knew that the writer was ignorant and would bury it that way, and so it was all kind of calculated to, to be that way. No, I wish I could tell you that I had spoken with anybody from Prospect Park, but they're a weird bunch of people over there. I reached out to Quatnitz toward the end of wrapping up the book because I thought that they might be interested in having a few words about the revival. I called their offices, and I was told to email Quatnitz's assistant, so I did. And then I waited about a week, and then I went to write him back to... Um, rattle his cage a little bit and the email address no longer worked so i don't know and it wasn't like a personal email address either i think it was like quatnitz.assistant at prospect park or something like that it was okay. it was a really generic address that seemed to be set up specifically for whoever happened to be quatnitz's assistant and it died it stopped working so i don't know and i don't think any of the actors know anything either you know it's so. it's the same story with me i mean i've tried and tried and tried and you know you would think this new venture that they would they they would be hungry for any kind of press that they could get, especially yeah. online press since this is an online project. <laughs> but you know what do I know? That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> the experience of writing the book was a roller coaster. I, I when I started, I was trying to hurry because, as one of the actors told me, daytime is like Chinese food and everybody wants it when it's warm. <laughs> but the next day. It's just kind of gross. And, and so I wanted to kind of strike while the iron was hot and people were still thinking about One Life to Live. And then sure. as I was closing in on what I thought was the home stretch, that's when this Prospect Park thing came back to life. And then I was trying to hurry to get it out to go along with the new version. And then as I thought I was finished with that, then this other news came out. So there's always a soap opera behind the soap opera. So. <laughs> And in many it's cases, in many events, it's, it's more interesting city, than yeah. the soap opera that we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. The story behind <laughs> the story is always, almost always more interesting than the story itself. Yeah. So uh, tell me how to find this book so we can let people know. You can get it on Amazon. It's available for the Kindle on Amazon. It's also available in paperback. You can get that on Amazon or at barnesandnoble.com. And I think you can get it at any bookstore. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have any confidence in, in being able to walk in and just find it on the shelf, but I think if you go and ask them to order it for you, they will be able to do that. The Kindle version is only $4.99, so if you want a quick fix... The Steel of the Century. And the Steel of the Century, thank you. Yeah, I guess it's like, I didn't realize it because I was doing it in Google Docs, and those are 8.5 by 11 pages, and so I thought it was like a 275-page book, which I thought was kind of impressive, but then once it was reformatted for the Kindle, I realized it's like 380 pages. <laughs> you get your money's worth. Absolutely. There's no question about that. <laughs> so, uh, one more time, just in case you haven't been paying attention for the past 50-some minutes, 
The man's name is Jeff Giles. His book is called Landview in the Afternoon, an oral history of one life to live. And if my vote counts for anything, it will be up for serious consideration for next year's Pulitzer Prize. It is that good, people. And at $5 for the ebook version, even if you're like me and you detest ebooks, it's the steal of the friggin' century, people. Stop what you're doing at once and get your behinds over to Amazon right damn now and snatch this thing up and tell them Brandon's Buzz sent you. You will not regret it. And I sincerely hope you don't regret spending this hour with Jeff Giles and myself. I want to thank Jeff once again for popping in here and subjecting himself to my mad fanboy frothing. He deserves the Purple Heart for surviving that alone, if for nothing else. Uh, again, you can find Jeff at popdust.com and rottentomatoes.com and any one of a number of online ports of call. Just Google his name. Something will pop up that points you in his direction, no doubt about it. As for me, another episode, uh, Brandon's Buzz, in the can, that's it. If you're listening already, then you clearly know how to find this show, but in case you don't, three places online, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz is home base for this show. It's mission control. From there, you can see what's on the show, what's been on the show, what's coming on the show. You can leave messages. You can leave comments. You can send emails. It really is home base for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There at the top of any page is a blue button marked radio. That takes you to a full radio archive, a full listing of every episode of Brandon's Buzz. This, I believe, is episode number 95. It's 90-something at any rate. This and all previous 90-some, 94, 90-whatever the number is, all of the episodes are available for listening and for download in the radio archive at brandonsbuzz.com, and I encourage you to check that out. There are some great guests, a great many One Life-related guests. As you know, I'm a big fan of that show and have devoted many hours of this show to celebrating that show with its actors and producers and what have you. It's, 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 there's great stuff at Brandon's Buzz, and I hope if you have not already taken the time to dig into the archive that you certainly will. Uh, I'm also on iTunes, guys. I'm on iTunes. Just type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section, click on my logo, <sighs> take a breath. From there, you can either uh, download individual old episodes of Brandon's Buzz uh, as podcasts for playback on the device of your choosing, or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they show up, they're uploaded to the music store. So I'm all over the I'm on, I'm on iTunes, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and I swear to you, something will pop up that points you in my direction. And as always, I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me, and I hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind, so spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy. Great show. Check it out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi. This is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. 
Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt.